This message comes from Capital One. Your business faces unique challenges and opportunities. That's why Capital One offers a comprehensive suite of financial services backed by the strength of a top 10 commercial bank. Visit CapitalOne.com slash commercial. Member FDIC. Hi, it's Jen. Just a quick heads up before we start the show. Today's edition of the 1A Movie Club will include spoilers for the movie Killers of the Flower Moon. So we understand if you want to come back and revisit this episode. In the meantime, you can visit the 1A.org to listen to more conversations. And as always, thanks for listening and enjoy the show. And now our feature presentation. In the 1920s, more than 60 wealthy members of the Osage Nation were mysteriously murdered. The murders were brutal and went largely uninvestigated by local and state police in Oklahoma. A century later, that story is being told on the big screen. The Osage, they have the worst land possible. But they outsmarted everybody. The land had oil on it. Black gold. Money flows freely here now. I do love that money, sir. (laughs) (laughs) For this edition of the 1A Movie Club, we're discussing Killers of the Flower Moon, a new film directed by Martin Scorsese that some say could be his last. The film was released in theaters on October 20th. It follows the relationship of Molly and Ernest Burkhart, played by actors Lily Gladstone and Leonardo DiCaprio, and Ernest's greedy uncle, William Hale, played by Robert De Niro. The movie is based on a book by the same name by journalist David Gran. We'll hear from him later on in the show. At $200 million, it's the largest production yet from Apple Studios. So what does the film get right about indigenous American culture? And what does it mean for the future of films featuring indigenous characters? We dig into those questions and get into a lot more after the break. I'm Jen White. You're listening to the 1A Podcast, where we get to the heart of the story. Stay with us. This message comes from Capital One, presenting sponsor of the 2024 Tiny Desk Contest. Earlier this year, unsigned musicians from around the country submitted their original songs for the 10th annual Tiny Desk Contest. The panel of judges are hard at work picking standout entries, and you can follow along and choose your favorite videos as well. The winner gets to play their very own Tiny Desk Concert, then headline a tour with NPR Music this summer. Want to come along for the ride? Visit tinydeskcontest.npr.org to learn more. Then check out the Venture X card from presenting sponsor Capital One. Earn unlimited 2x miles on everything you buy and turn everyday purchases into extraordinary trips. What's in your wallet? Terms apply. See CapitalOne.com for details. This message comes from NPR's sponsor, Teladoc Health. There are lots of reasons for wanting to be healthy. Family, work, living a fuller life. Teladoc Health understands. Whether you have diabetes, high blood pressure, or just need to manage your weight, Teladoc Health can help. Visit TeladocHealth.com slash What's Your Why for more information. That's T-E-L-A-D-O-C Health slash What's Your Why. This message comes from NPR sponsor Charles Schwab with their original podcast, Choiceology. Hosted by Katie Milkman, an award-winning behavioral scientist and author of the best-selling book, How to Change. 
Choiceology is a show about the psychology and economics behind people's decisions. Hear true stories from Nobel laureates, authors, athletes, and more about why people do the things they do. Download the latest episode and subscribe at schwab.com slash podcast or wherever you listen. Joining us in studio from Washington, D.C. is John Horn. He's a film reporter and the vice president of the 1A Movie Club. John, it's great to have you here in person. Finally. We are face-to-face. Also with us is Shannon Shaw-Duty. She's the editor for Osage News and a citizen of the Osage Nation. Shannon, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. And also with us is Vincent Schilling. He's Aquasauce name Mohawk author, journalist, and editor. He's also the founder of Native Viewpoint. That's a Native and Indigenous guided storytelling website. Vincent, it's great to have you. Thank you so much for having me. So I just want to do a quick round table and hear everyone's rating of the film on a scale of, let's say, one to five. Shannon, I'll come to you first. What did you think? I'm going to give it 4.5 stars. Okay. All right. Vincent, what about for you? Yeah, I'd say a five. And John? I'm going to give it a four. I think it's an important movie. It tells a story of untold U.S. history that everybody should know. I have some quibbles with how the movie ends and what it misses. Mm -hmm. So, John, in just a a few sentences really briefly, give us a brief synopsis. It follows David Grant's book very closely. It's about the murders that were engineered by a group of white people who basically married in to the Osage families and then systematically killed them. So once they were gone, they would inherit their their oil and their money. And there was a lot of oil. J. Paul Getty made most of his fortune in the Osage. And the story is about the relationship between one specific couple, played by Leonardo DiCaprio, uh, and and his wife, Molly, uh, who is played by Lily Gladstone. Gladstone. Thank mm-hmm. you. Uh-huh. Um, and it's really about their relationship. And the FBI is like half of the book, but it's about a quarter of the movie. Okay. Well, let's go to our inbox. I live in Tulsa, Oklahoma. I'm a professor at Tulsa Community College. I teach the Osage murders uh, to my students. And it's a fascinating thing for them to learn because many of them have never heard of the Osage murders. And it's very similar to the Tulsa Race Massacre, which was kept hidden for so long and swept under the rug um, until about the centennial. And then it became international news. And something very similar is happening with the filming of Killers of the Flower Moon. Uh, So my students write about the Osage murders and they, they write about themes such as economic envy. I actually live in Osage County, and I'm on the reservation. Sloan, thanks for that message. Shannon, as a citizen of the Osage Nation, what stories were you told about these murders growing up? Well, I I wasn't told much. Uh, It was a very painful subject for my family. We did have stories of how guardians treated my grandmother and, and my ancestors, and it was just always something that was uh, ingrained in us and, you know, don't trust the outside community with information about head rights, land interests, etc. So when I read The Deaths of Sybil Bolton by Dennis McAuliffe Jr. when I was a teenager, it was very eye-opening to the murders that took place. The 1921 Tulsa race massacre is actually mentioned in the film. At one point, a character yells out, this is Tulsa all over, and you see some some film of that race massacre. Vincent, what do you make of that comment that the Osage murders are experiencing a similar, I don't know if to, to call it a historical revival or coming into public awareness, in the same way as the Tulsa massacre did after a really popular HBO series a couple of years ago? Yeah, well, like it or not, whether 
or not we want to admit this in American society, but I would feel safe in saying 75% of our education about history is from television or movies. You know, we, we learn about everything as children of what happened in society based upon the stories we're told on TV. You know, my TV was more of a teacher than my teachers were, you know, and uh, that's, that's just really all there is to it. And sometimes it's going to take a film uh, like this or a television show uh, that really breaks boundaries to, to redefine what uh, native people are or any society is based upon what's hitting TV or films. It's just a fact, you know, if you think about the things, you know, how much of what you know is based upon what you've seen on television or films. It's a lot, especially history. Yeah. Shannon, once it became clear this story was going to be made into a film, what conversations happened in your community? Uh, Whenever uh, the film, uh, when the community first learned that it was coming to our community, um, there was a lot of disinterest at first. And then uh, it was almost kind of like, oh, this is just another, another thing that will pass through. But then when uh, Martin Scorsese uh, signed on, then the whole conversation changed. Mm. It was excitement. Then it was uh, fear. Then it was anger. And then we were all just kind of in this waiting period of what's going to happen? You know, how is this going to affect us? How is he going to tell the story? So that conversation was was very loud. The fear and anger you referred to, was that a result of having some of those conversations that were incredibly painful for for your community, or or was it attached to something else? It was attached to how Natives have been portrayed in films prior. So, you know, the white savior complex, we didn't want it to be a white savior film, which I don't think it is. And two, we didn't want, we didn't want our ancestors' gruesome murders, because they were pretty gruesome, Mm to be portrayed in like a action type film where the, you know, slow motion bullets, you know, you know, blood spraying everywhere. We didn't want that either, but it's not that it's not that at all. I think it's a very respectfully done film. And the, the way that he shows the murders, I would say is more impactful than if you sensationalized it. Vincent, a part of you braced yourself for a typical Western film with offensive portrayals of of Native characters. How do you think Martin Scorsese handled the portrayal of Indigenous peoples? I think he did excellent. I I was terrified, uh, terrified, you know, just like Shannon said, you know, it's, it's, it's just the way it's been done for so long. I have been a journalist in arts and entertainment for nearly 20 years. And I can't tell you time after time after time watching, you know, uh, Native people portrayed. I remember doing an interview one time with uh, a doctor saying he used to watch Westerns and go, oh, I like the, the cowboys, but who are those stupid people he keeps fighting? Mm. You know, didn't not even realizing it's your own tribe. You know, you look back at some of the things we've come from. I'm 56. And what I saw in the 70s as compared to what I'm seeing today is is just vastly, vastly different. You know, I, I interviewed, uh, you know, former chief Jim Gray, uh, Olivia Gray, and, and they were very thrilled to see, you know, um, uh, Jim Gray had said to Scorsese, we don't want to see what we've seen for so long. Mm -hmm. We don't want to see our people misrepresented. 
we don't want to see this. And, and, and the whole room, according to Jim Gray, applauded and Scorsese walked up, shook his hand and Scorsese changed the script. And uh, even Scorsese himself in an interview said, you know, that I was watching that. Yeah, we listen to the Osage in every every way. We'll get into that after the break. Stay with us. This message comes from Capital One, offering commercial solutions you can bank on. Now more than ever, your business faces unique challenges and opportunities. That's why Capital One offers a comprehensive suite of financial services, all tailored to your short and long-term goals. Backed by the strength and stability of a top 10 commercial bank, their dedicated experts work with you to build lasting success. Explore the possibilities at CapitalOne.com slash commercial, a member FDIC. This message comes from NPR sponsor Viore. Jump into a new perspective on performance apparel. Viore makes products that stand the test of time and hope to inspire others to live vibrant, healthy lives, empowering your best life in clothing that can be worn for just about any activity from running to yoga. Visit viore.com slash NPR to receive 20% off your first purchase and enjoy free shipping on any U.S. orders over $75. Discover the versatility of Viore clothing. This message comes from NPR sponsor Charles Schwab with its original podcast on investing. Each week, you'll get thoughtful, in-depth analysis of both the stock and the bond markets. Listen today and subscribe at schwab.com slash on investing or wherever you get your podcasts. It's a high stakes election year, so it's not enough to just follow along. You need to understand what's happening so you are fully informed come November. Every weekday on the NPR Politics Podcast, our political reporters break down important stories and backstories from the campaign trail so you understand why it matters to you. Listen to the NPR Politics Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Let's go to our inbox. Here's a message we got from Camilla in Baton Rouge. I'm of Native descent on one side of my family, and it's a very difficult topic. I honestly don't want to see the movie, but that's exactly why I'm going to go see it, because it's these painful subjects and topics that need to be shared, and we need to tell the world. I'm hoping that, you know, the story was done justice. And I mean, just the story came out. My family told me all about it because of the movie coming out. I had no idea that it was coming out. And, you know, since Native storytellers aren't given a platform, I'm glad that amazing artists like Scorsese are putting a platform out there for these incredible topics. Camilla, thanks for that message. And we heard from Tom who says, I saw it Friday night, way, way too long and grim. I enjoyed DiCaprio and De Niro, but it gets a thumbs down for me. It should have been a miniseries. John, the movie is three and a half hours long. How do you think the length might affect its performance? That's a, that's a long movie. Uh, I've seen 90-minute movies that felt much longer yeah, than that. Same. So <laughs> I was engrossed. Uh, I would actually say... They could have added 10 minutes more about the FBI's shortcomings in, in investigating the film. I mean, this is a, obviously, it's an Apple film. It's a streaming play. Paramount was going to make the movie initially, thought it was too expensive. So they sold it to Apple. Paramount's distributing it, but doesn't really have any skin in the game. So the theatrical performance of the film is going to be tested by its running time. But it actually did pretty good business yeah, how did over it the do weekend. over the weekend? 
It's no Taylor Swift, but I think we knew that. Um, it did $23 million, and it did it in you know a fraction of the locations that a lot of movies and big, big releases uh, open to. That's a good opening. I mean, the word of mouth, I think, is going to be good. The reviews have been very strong, so it could hang in there. But yes, three and a half hours about the murder of Native Americans in 1920s is not scream commercial appeal. But given all of those uh, overcomes, it did very well. Vincent, you've been working on a book about your grandmother, who's Mohawk and Black, and the abuse she experienced at a boarding school for Native children. What was it like to see this film after spending the past several years researching your own family's history? Ooh, that just got me. <laughs> I didn't oh, expect sorry. that. Um, uh, yeah, it's really, really intense. Uh, and what I've been learning in in years and years of research is the profound, horrible, horrible disdain, and I- I'm going to call it racism, in the government towards Native people. It was about getting land. It was about doing everything they could to undermine this land. To get And, and then when Osage get this bounty of oil money, you know, uh, the cash-strapped U.S. government of the, those days didn't want to see it. So they started, you know, creating guardians, etc. So to see all this and come full circle, I'm just over and over again, I am re-instructed and relearning the fact that the founders of this country were not friends to the native for the most part at all. You know, we were a thorn in their side that they had to get rid of somehow. And just the way that they were getting rid of people who had money and they wanted it. um, You know, some quotes I came across were, we're going to teach the children because it's cheaper than fighting them in a war. You know, so that is what my grandmother came from. And my grandmother raised me to about six years old when my mother was working. And she never, ever spoke a word of her Mohawk language to me. Never. Not one day. Nothing. I never heard Gonalunqua, which means I love you. I, I didn't hear anything from her. She was too terrified that I could be listed as a native child and be taken from the family because that's what happened to her. The The last the last schools, these schools were in the 1990s in the U.S. and Canada. Wow. It's, it's, it's a horrible, horrible history. And I think something like this that brings the history to light of what really happened, you know, I don't understand why people are so afraid to talk about history. They didn't do it. Maybe their grandfathers did. And they don't want to talk about it. But it's been said over and over again, those who do not learn from history are doomed to, to repeat it. it. Yeah. Why don't we want to talk about history? What is everyone afraid of? Shannon, I want to come to you about the opening scene um, of the film. There's a gathering of Osage and they're talking about what this oil money means. And there is a sense of what I experienced as both recognition, but also dread about what this could mean for them. What what was your experience of that opening scene of the film? That opening scene is a beautiful scene. It's the very beginning of the book, A Pipe for February, A Pipe for February, written by the Osage author Charles Redcorn. My aunt is actually in that scene, mm-hmm. and um, it affected me because it's not only just the dread of oil; it's just the dread of the white man's ways. Because we had different uh, ceremonies and rituals that we performed in our old religion that, you know, the government had outlawed. 
And so in order for us not to be killed or be put in jail or et cetera, we had to put down our old ways. And that is something that is very painful for all Osage everywhere. And seeing my aunt on screen, her name is Margaret Sisk, but seeing her on screen wailing for that pipe and that they were burying that pipe was, um, it just, it made me weep. Mm. It did. And, um, you know, we hear about these things and, and we're told about these things about our ancestors, et cetera. And, you know, we're so far removed from all of them and what their lives were like. And to see it, as it was like we were transported back in time, able to witness and see that moment in time is how it felt for me. And it was just so profoundly sad and um, just uh, made me ache for what could have been. Now, John, last week you spoke to the author and journalist David Grant, and he's the author of the book on which the movie is based. It's by the same name. Here's part of that conversation. There were many other suspicious deaths never properly investigated. And one of the things I tried to document in the book was that there was this much deeper and darker conspiracy that the Bureau never exposed. And I will, because I still go back to Osage County regularly and visit with people, and people will come up with me occasionally and share with me about another story, about a relative who died under murky circumstances. And one of the great tragedies of this history is that in many cases, the murders had erased not only the lives of their victims, but also their history. Mm. Shannon, how much do Grant's comments resonate with you? Oh, uh, well, my father's great-grandfather uh, died frothing at the mouth uh, in, in, in his front room in front of his family, and he left behind six young children all under the age of 14, and there was never an investigation, and his killers weren't brought to justice. But the family knew that it was over a tract of land that uh, uh, sat right next to Hale's land, and he wanted it. And everyone uh, in my family believes that he was poisoned by Hale's people. And uh, so that is something that we've had to uh, think about, contend with, try and search within ourselves, you know, what does this mean for our family and, and, and how do we process this and how do we, how do we move forward with our family knowing and, and my children knowing that these things happened and, and how do we prevent anything like that from happening again and foster strength and empowerment. But what does that absence of definitive answers, the absence of justice mean for the Osage community? What lasting impact has it had? The lasting impact has been an erasure of our culture. You had entire families wiped out. Like, take for instance, Molly Burkhart's family. You know, her granddaughter, Margie Burkhart, who was at that Gray Horse meeting when Scorsese spoke to the community, and they had many consultations with Margie and her family. She has said on the record that she should have had a large family. She should have had many cousins. And that is what happens when you erase that matriarch or that patriarch. The knowledge of that culture goes because our history is an oral history. We don't have books, you know, written down of what our culture should be. So that is what happens. And we learn within our community by watching our grandparents, by watching our elders. They're like the most precious people. And so having that all taken away and, you know, robbing them of the right to have children and grandchildren 
it made our community smaller. It made our knowledge of our culture smaller. And uh, ever since 2006, when we got our new government, it's like it's been a race to learn as much as we can and come together as much as we can. And this film is also bringing Osages together again. Osages all over the country were seeing this movie together. They were reaching out to Osages in their state that they'd never met before. They were all joining together to go see this film. That's how much it means yeah. to our, our people. Well, one of the film's Osage language consultants, Christopher Cote, has mixed feelings about the film. As an Osage, I really wanted this to be from the perspective of Molly and what her family experienced. But I think it would take an Osage to do that. Um, Martin Scorsese not being Osage, I think he did a great job representing our people. But this story is being told, this history is being told almost from, from the perspective of um, Ernest Burkhart. And they kind of give him this conscience and they kind of depict that there's love. But when somebody conspires to murder your entire family, uh, that's not love. This was one of the, the parts of the film that I found unsettling and, and it I, I just came out <laughs> feeling a bit, uh, I don't know how to even describe it. But Vincent, this is one of your critiques of the film as well, this relationship between Ernest and Molly. What about it didn't work for you? I just felt as though, you know, it's tough because you, you if someone's murdering your family, how can there be love? Mm-hmm. And the sad realization I had that kind of overwhelmed me over the weekend is that in, in Native communities and, and, and white communities and, and all types of communities, there are very, very, very toxic relationships that keep going when they shouldn't. So I don't know what Molly and Ernest might have said between each other, but it is something that's really, really hard to stomach. You know, it's, it's, it's something that's, that's, that I agonize with, to be honest with you. I want to stick with that point after the break. Stay with us. This message comes from NPR sponsor Mint Mobile. From the gas pump to the grocery store, inflation is everywhere. So Mint Mobile is offering premium wireless starting at just $15 a month. To get your new phone plan for just $15, go to mintmobile.com slash switch. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Progressive Insurance, where drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. Get your quote at Progressive.com and see if you could save. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. I want to pick up our conversation with Molly Burkhart, her relationship with her husband, Ernest. And Shannon, as I was watching the film, what I saw was a woman with limited options who felt trapped, knew she was trapped, knew she wasn't safe as her family was dying around her. And there, there's a whole underlying conversation to be had about coercion and abuse and and I felt like that was something Scorsese could have reached more to, to try to, to, to understand, help us understand more about how trapped Molly was. Because before she married Ernest, 
she was considered incompetent. She didn't have access to her own money, so was the marriage in some way an escape for her? And I wanted to hear hear your thoughts about that. Well, there's no way that I can know those answers. Um, all I know is that Scorsese uh, worked with the Burkhart family descendants uh, and with members of the Grey Horse community, and this is the story that they told. Um the Grey Horse community is uh, made up of Osages that uh, that are from the northeast part of our reservation, and it's different from the Osage communities Bahuska and Hominy. And the story could have been told in many ways, mm-hmm. but he, this was a story about a woman from Grey Horse, and her descendants and the members of that community got together and consulted with Scorsese, and this is the story that they told. And knowing those consultants myself, I know that, and I can say in good faith, that they did the best they could. And it may not be the story that some people wanted or think it should have been, but that's the story they told. And so to me, that's what happened. Yeah, I think I I was left with such heartbreak and... um Discomfort isn't even a strong enough, a strong enough word to see the portrayal of her suffering um, through that mm-hmm. through that experience. And I think it's the thing that we sometimes do with stories like this, where we we are reaching for some something to help us understand, and and maybe that just doesn't exist. One thing I do want to make sure we talk about is the presence of white guardians in the film. And Vincent, this is something you alluded to in your own family, and and this is a practice that's accurate to the time period. And it's purposely left unexplained in the film, and it is jarring. You have wealthy Native Americans asking white men permission to access their own money. Explain a little bit more about the Guardian system. Well, you know, I've, I've read several, several books and done massive research on this film before it aired. And, you know, one of the things people talk about is, is the Guardians. Um, there is a family member in the Osage I talked to. I didn't get a permission to say this person's name, so I won't. But her grandmother uh, was dropped off at an orphanage by her white family after the Osage member of the family died. Ten years later, they go get her because they were going to kick her off the land, kick them off the land without having an Osage person there. And at 13 years old, she has head rights and she marries a man who's old enough to be her grandfather when she's 13. Because that way you can have access to your money. And it was very upsetting, but, you know, uh, it is what it is. So these guardians were set in place due to an act of Congress in 1921 that said, well, if you're going to have a lot of money, Osage, you need to be declared incompetent or not. You know, uh, there's even a guy who was, I forget his name, I just was doing research this weekend, who was a member of the military, you know, and he had to come back and, you know, he knew how to write letters, et cetera, et cetera. And they still declared him incompetent. He fought it till the end. So these guardians, you know, were, were set in place to manage money, but they ended up stealing more, you know, than, than they, they even allotted out. Like up to 75% of the money they, they took or stole straight out, took it under false pretenses, <laughs> saying this cost this. John, go ahead. This is a modern analogy. It is Jamie Spears and Britney Spears, really, that these people were supposed to be guardians. And you can't think of a 
more inappropriate name to call these people. They approved every expense the Osage uh, had. They sold them goods at inflated prices. They basically ran their lives in a way that only benefited the guardians rather than the people that they were, in theory, guarding. You know, in thinking about what you shared about the images you saw growing up of Native Americans and indigenous peoples in film and television, what is it like for you to see these actors in a major film today? It's it's not really even describable. I just never foresaw this happening. Never. You know, I, I, uh, I've been, you know, messaging uh, to talk. I've actually even DM'd Lily Gladstone and, and a lot of the actors and just been so thrilled because I just never thought I would see this day. I never thought I would see a director at the level of Martin Scorsese. And let's, let's admit he's one of the top directors in the absolute world and has been for decades uh, to have this much respect or intention to pay respect as he did is unfounded. And these, and the fact that people think that anything about this could be white savior, I have to say, you know, 1920s United States was about white men, whether you liked it or not. It's history, folks. And the only people who really could do much were white men at that time in terms of, you know, policies and sending the FBI, et cetera, et cetera. But to see, you know, to Tonka Means or other friends of mine or, or people are here about, you know, uh, actors, my dad was in here and, you know, everywhere I'm turning, people have their family. And I'm just like, this is, you know, freaking epic. I'm just so excited. I'm so excited for everyone involved. And it's just really, really wonderful to see. And thank God, finally, finally, you know, I've, I've been waiting for a film like this. And I just, I, I'm so glad I got to be around to see it. I, I briefly want to touch on a casting decision um, with Leonardo DiCaprio, John, because he was not originally planning to play Ernest Burkhardt. He was going to play the FBI agent. How would that have changed the film, do you think? Well, this is what Marty Scorsese has said, that he didn't want a whodunit story. He wanted to do, which is part of the book, David Grant's book is a mystery of solving who is at, you know, behind this. That secret is given away very early in the film. And he thought if Leo was playing the FBI agent, it was more of a white savior story. And so I think Leo agreed, or it might even have been Leo's idea, that by having him play Ernest Burkhardt, it changes the story in terms of grounding it inside the Osage community rather than these interlopers from Washington. And that also meant that that part of the story was truncated and Leo's part was played by Jesse Plemons. It changes the movie completely, I think. And I think it was a really good choice. Shannon, you took your kids to see the film over the weekend. What did they think about it? Well, <laughs> they I think they were uh, very focused also on seeing all the Osage extras in the film. <laughs> there was a, a couple of pointing outs of, there's grandma, you know. <laughs> and uh, my husband and I were in there, as well as, as three of my kids. So, uh, but you know, I I I really prepared them for it because they know the story, and we've been talking about this. And you know, my son Joseph, who's in the sixth grade, and his name's Joseph Bates, duty named after uh, my great uh, great great grandfather that was killed. Um, you know, they're they're reading the young adapted version, so he he's very in tune to what is going on around him as well because the kids are talking about it at school. 
So, uh, and my youngest son goes to Daposka Ankodapi, which is the Osage Nation's private elementary school, and they've been talking about this for a couple of years now. So uh, he's 11, and he would turn to me at, during the film, and he's like, "They were murdered." I was like, "Yes." He's like, "For our land, for our money." I was like, "Yes." You know, I mean, these these are all these things that they were expecting, but then to see it on film. I could tell they were still shocked and they were still moved, even at 12 and 11 years old. And then my my teenagers, they thought it was a very good film. And I was really surprised by their um, their depth of understanding of, of uh, and just their emotions when they were telling me about the film. We had some really good conversations afterward about the film and what they thought. And, um, you know, they all the kids at their high school have been talking about it as well because, you know, we live in this community. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, it was a really good experience. We talked about the opening scene of the film. Um, The final scene is of members of the Osage dancing. And I'm I'm curious your thoughts, Shannon, that uh, what you felt about that that bookend. We start with a fear of loss of tradition, but then we end with witnessing this beautiful tradition. You know, I saw that. I saw that and I cried because, um, you know, uh, we've been through so much. And yet within our people, you can't meet an Osage without asking them, how do you guys do this? And what we always have been told by our elders and what I tell my children is we move forward. We move forward. We don't look back. You know, that happened, yes. It does not define us. That is not who we are. We are a strong, resilient, beautiful people. And that dance that you see on the screen encapsulates hundreds of years of our traditions all boiled down into one into everything that we've learned and everything that we carry moving forward. And we are going to continue to prosper. Nothing's going to hold us back because we are a very strong people. That's Shannon Shaw Duty, the editor for Osage News and a citizen of the Osage Nation. Also with us, Vincent Schilling. He's an Aquasasne Mohawk author, journalist, and editor. He's also the founder of Native Viewpoint. That's a Native and Indigenous guided storytelling website. And John Horn. He's a film reporter and the vice president of the 1A Movie Club. John, Vincent, Shannon, thank you so much for speaking with us. Today's producer was Haley Blassingame. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm Jen White. Thanks for listening. And we'll talk more soon. This is 1A. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Viking, committed to exploring the world in comfort. Journey through the heart of Europe on an elegant Viking longship with thoughtful service, destination-focused dining, and cultural enrichment on board and on shore. And every Viking voyage is all-inclusive with no children and no casinos. Discover more at Viking.com. 
Support for NPR and the following message come from IXL Learning. IXL Learning uses advanced algorithms to give the right help to each kid, no matter the age or personality. Get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when you sign up today at IXL.com NPR. All that sitting and swiping, your body is adapting to your technology. Learn how and what you can do about it. I really felt like the cloud in my brain kind of dissipated. Once I started realizing what a difference these little bricks were making, there's no turning back for me. Take NPR's Body Electric Challenge. Listen to the series wherever you get your podcasts.